This past week, our annual Fall and Outreach event saw hundreds of youth, children, and parents come to the Longview campus with our Family Fall Fest in the Worship Center and costumes and candy at Elevation. At schools and neighborhoods in Marshall, we gave out almost 2,000 goodie bags with information about our church as a part of reverse trick-or-treating. Let's continue to pray for the seeds that were planted this week. Today's a very important day in Marbley because we're beginning a Go Missions emphasis for four weeks. And what you've seen on the screen are examples of local missions right here at Longview in Longview, Texas, as well as Southern Baptist Sin Relief Ministry that the Lord has called me to lead at this stage of life. That's the full-time ministry that, that I lead from Atlanta. And it's really a new ministry because for the first time, the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board have joined together to have one relief ministry for our denomination. And there are five major areas that we focus on. One is in enriching or strengthening communities, mostly dealing with hunger relief, water issues, especially in third world areas around the world. Hunger is going to be a huge problem in light of the COVID-19 issues that we're dealing with. Secondly, there's ministry to refugees and displaced people, over 70 million refugees and displaced people in the world. And then second, uh, thirdly is a ministry for children and families, uh, knowing that very often orphans uh, are in need of adoption, foster care, be it in the States or around the world. Then there's a ministry of battling human trafficking, which is really a modern form of slavery, sex slavery, that is rampant around the world. And then finally, crisis response, where you, most of you would know of sin relief after hurricanes and natural disasters. Southern Baptist Christians go in and seek to be the love of Christ in hopes that we can share the good news of Christ and be Great Commission Christians. So I ask your prayers for that ministry and the daily responsibility of leading that ministry as we are bringing together new staff from the International Bishop Board, the North American Bishop Board, working with churches all around the world in this regard. Now, our Go Mission emphasis is a time when Paul and I are going to be tag team preaching every other week, alternating, bringing you messages of what Christ has called us to be and do as Great Commission Baptists and Great Commission congregations around the world. And we're going to begin this series by looking at Matthew 24. So if you'll turn there, if you're new to Bible study, Matthew is the easy book to find because the first book of the New Covenant, the Bible is divided into Old Covenant, New Covenant, which is better known as Old Testament, New Testament. And I realize we always have folks here that know nothing about the Scriptures. And it's important to know that you're not the only one. There are a lot of folks that know a lot about the Scriptures here, but there are also people who know nothing. So you can find Matthew as the first book of the New Covenant. We're going to look at verse tw uh, chapter 24, and we're going to be studying verses 1 through 14. But by way of introducing our study, we're going to read verses 1 through 3, and then skip down and read verse 14. And if you're physically able, if you'll stand now in honor of God as we read his word and let him speak to us today. Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple... And was going away when his disciples came out to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you that not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. 
As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us then, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Let's skip down to verse 14. Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Father, as we stand before you as our creator, as the Lord of all the universe, we thank you so much that you are a personal God that wants to have a personal message to all of us individually this day through your word. So, Father, may you speak, and may you reiterate to all of us out of Christ's great commission that we're to be go-mission believers here at Moberly and in churches all around the globe. And, Lord, may this time be centered on you through your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Everyone would like to know what's going to happen in the future. Who's going to win this election? And not only who's going to win the presidential election, but what's going to happen in the United States Senate? Will it be Democratic-led or Republican-led? What's going to happen in these elections, both nationally, statewide, down to local races all around the land? And what's going to happen with COVID-19? Who would have ever thought in March that we would still be dealing with this virus that is now spreading like wildfire once again in states around the country where it was not as strong in the past? And Europe is seeing another wave of the coronavirus. How long is this going to last? All of us would like to know. And what about the economy? No doubt the coronavirus has had an impact on the economy and how thankful we are that the economy has been roaring back. But will it continue to do so in the days, weeks, months ahead? What is going to happen with the economy? It wasn't a good week on Wall Street. Is that a foreshadowing of things to come or just a little blip on the screen? The fact is, as we raise these questions, only God knows the answer. And that is not you. God is the only one that knows the future. And thankfully, Jesus Christ, in his ministry here on earth, gives us a glimpse of the future with key insight of the future so none of us will be surprised as these events are unfolding in the course of history. Now, let me give you a little background about this text. Jesus is moving rapidly towards the cross. These are the final days of his ministry here on earth. And Jesus has been teaching in and around the temple and his disciples have now wandered down the hills from the east side of Jerusalem up the Mount of Olives, which is on the eastern side of Jerusalem. And as they are there, Jesus says something that shocks them. They're admiring the temple. And you see, it's not just the rebuilt temple when they returned from Babylon hundreds of years earlier, but Herod the Great has most recently 
really done all kind of architectural and structural advancement to the temple. He's built this giant platform that you see to this very day when you're sitting on the Mount of Olives looking out over the old city of Jerusalem. And they were in awe of the site. It was one of the great sites of the ancient world. And then Jesus says, look, guys, one day in the future, there will not be a stone left standing of the temple that you're so admiring now. They couldn't take it in. Now, obviously, Jesus was prophesying what would happen with the Roman Empire in 70 A.D. as the Romans came in and literally destroyed the temple of Jerusalem. You can go outside the walls in Jerusalem today, and you can see some of those giant stones that the Romans pushed over the side when they were obliterating the temple in 70 A.D. But the disciples at this point couldn't imagine it. It was such an incredible structure. It would be like you and I, standing on the Jersey Shore on September 10th, 2001, and admiring the World Trade Towers, the very symbol of free enterprise and capitalism in the United States. And a person says to you, you know, it won't be long before there will not be a portion of those twin towers left standing. You wouldn't be able to take it in. And the very next day, September 11, 2001, they were destroyed, obliterated. Who could have ever dreamed it? Some of you are old enough to remember what it was like to have a Berlin Wall that separated the Soviet Union from the free world. And then one day that wall came tumbling down. Who would have ever dreamed that in our lifetime? So what Jesus said to his disciples just stunned them. They couldn't take it in. But it did create curiosity. And we see the disciples are no different from you and me. They wanted to know the future as well. So in verse 3, they ask Jesus three questions. They say, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus begins to answer their question. And in verses, verses 4 through 8, we see Jesus describing some of the signs of his coming. Look at what he says in verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. You see, there's all kind of false prophecy in the world today. There's all kind of false futurism in the world today. And Jesus is saying, look, I don't want you to be misled. First of all, sign number one. He talks about it in verse 5. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will mislead many. Now, perhaps some of you remember Sun Young Moon. He was a supposed to be the second coming of Jesus Christ, according to him. You may remember the Moonies in metropolitan areas selling roses at intersections. And Jesus is saying, the closer you come to my second coming, you're going to see more and more false Christ. Count on it. But he says, sign number two, verse six. He says, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, here's what's so interesting. You can go around the world today, even though the United States is so focused on itself, not realizing all the tribal warfare that is going on, be it in Africa or in Southeast Asia and the Philippines and Indonesia, places like that around the world. But think about just the little nation of Israel today. It's been very exciting that they have renewed economic opportunity with several Arab nations. That's been an incredible accomplishment of this administration, very overlooked. But still, Israel has to worry about Iran and the threat of war there. And then right below them in the south, Hamas. And right above them in southern Lebanon is Hezbollah. 
That's just one little example around the world. But think about this. I want you to look at a couple of graphs. Look at this first graph in talking about militarized disputes since 1870. And I want you to look at this graph to see how they are not only increasing, but they intensify at times. You see between 1930 and 1950, World War II. And then you see another wave of that moving into the early 90s with the Gulf War and other conflicts around the world. But what you see is an increase and then a decline, an increase and then a decline. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. Now look at this second graph. This second graph shows you the wars and casualties of wars by centuries beginning in the 16th century from 1500 to 1600. And what scholars have discovered is that there were more casualties of war in the 20th century than in all 19 centuries combined since the time of Jesus. Now, obviously, part of that is a larger population in the world, but still, it's a very amazing thing as Christ talks about these signs and preparation of his coming that we see a dramatic increase of casualties in war in the 20th century and think about the dawning of the 21st century that really in many ways was kicked off on 9-11 just a foreshadowing of what we'll see in the 21st century with about 80 years to go in light of the 20th century a pretty sobering thought but Jesus goes on he talks about sign number three he says in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Now, Jesus is talking about natural disasters. That can be floods. That can be hurricanes. That can be tsunamis. It can be droughts. It can be famines, earthquakes. He's talking about an increase of natural disasters. Now, think about what we've seen in the United States this year in regards to hurricanes. We've not only gone through the English alphabet, naming tropical storms and hurricanes. Now, we're on the Greek alphabet, This past week with Hurricane Seda, it literally stormed through Atlanta. We were awakened in the middle of the night. Winds up to 70 miles an hour, trees and telephone poles down all over the place. We don't have many hurricanes in Atlanta. I want you to know that's a a rare phenomenon. But think about what has been happening all throughout this hurricane season. Now, I want you to look at this graph from meteorological studies. This really came out of some studies that were made earlier leading up to 2005 but I want you to look at that graph of the increase and you see a dramatic increase at times and it drops off a dramatic increase it drops off and think about from the year 2000 through 2019 how dramatic that shows of natural disasters all around the world you might not realize this past summer over 50 now listen are you listening over 15 million people in Bangladesh were displaced because of floods in August of 2020 Did many Americans hear about this on the news in our obsession with presidential elections? 15 million people displaced, totally removed from their homes. Just one of many natural disasters going on around the world. So Jesus speaks of these signs, and then he describes it in verse 8. He says, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now that may ring a bell for some of you who listen in church. In my very first sermon to you back in August, we looked at Romans 8 where we talked about earth pains and how creation is groaning and things are out of whack and there's a longing for the creation to finally at last have peace and harmony. And one of the things that Paul mentions in Romans 8 is birth pains. He gets it from Jesus in this very 
text that we're studying today. And birth pains, as we talked about that day, they're real irregular, not even that noticeable when they begin, but the closer and closer a woman comes to giving birth, the more regular and the more intense are the labor pains. Think about these graphs that you've seen. An intensity and then backing off. An intensity and then backing off. 2020 has been an incredible hurricane season. 2021 may be a backing off. Because Jesus is talking about events, be it false messiahs, be it wars and rumors and wars, be it natural disasters, they were beginning in the first century. And even what he talks about, what about what Christians are going to face in verses 9 through 13, these things happen in the first century. But the intensity and the regularity and the frequency is going to increase the closer and closer we come to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus wants us to have our eyes open, to look at the world around us, to see what is happening. These are signs of his coming, like birth pains. And think about what happens for those of you who have given birth. After the incredible pain of childbirth, then there is the joy and thanksgiving of that new life that you have been blessed with, that little baby, that child. So the birth pains are quickly forgotten with the joy and thanksgiving of that. And what Jesus is telling us, look, when he comes again for his church, in spite of the fact that we're going to face increasingly difficult days in the days to come, when he finally comes for his church, it's going to be great joy and thanksgiving of a new world, far greater than any trouble and suffering and difficulty that we've had in this life. That's what Jesus is helping us to picture. But then Jesus goes on to talk about the challenges for the Christians. And tough days are coming. Look at verse 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Now, understand what Jesus is talking about to his disciples. Remember now, this happened in the first century with the original disciples, all but one of them dying a martyr's death. And John was placed in exile on the Isle of Patmos. So this happened in the first century. But he's helping us to understand this in the concept of birth pains, a greater frequency, a greater intensity, more and more regularity. And he's saying there's going to be more and more persecution and martyrdom among Christians around the world. You know, a lot of Christians, many of you maybe, have made the mistake of thinking that martyrdom really occurred to Christians in the first century with the brutality of Rome and the Jewish religious leaders opposing the church in those early days. But do you realize there were more martyrs, biblical scholars and historians are saying that were perhaps more martyrs in the 20th century than any other century since the time of Christ? And think about it. Think about the Soviet Union, the communist systems, the Marxist systems, and communist China, North Korea, places like that around the world where Christians have faced incredible suffering and hardship. And, and Jesus is saying to the church, it's only going to increase. You can count on it. Easter Sunday, 2019, Muslim terrorists set off bombs in three hotels in Sri Lanka and three churches. Almost 400 people martyred and thousands injured. It was either 18 or 17 on Palm Sunday in Egypt. Muslim radicals set off bombs in churches there. 45 were killed in those worship services. Hundreds more were injured. This is just a picture of what has come. Now, now listen, American Christian, listen, are you listening? 
We don't face persecution in America. We face discrimination, but we don't yet face persecution. And if you don't believe the discrimination is there, some of you working in the corporate culture, knowing how difficult it is to stand for Christian biblical values where political correctness is now the supreme ideology, you know the discrimination you can face in your own job because of that. Because there was a time in American culture where Judeo-Christian values was the dominant worldview. It didn't mean everybody was a Christian. didn't mean everybody adhered to it, but it was the accepted view. That's no longer the case. The dominant worldview in American culture today is political correctness. It is a secular Phariseeism, Phariseeism if you will. And it is a culture of shame and guilt and no forgiveness. And if you don't believe it, just look at how our canceling culture totally writes off someone who breaks the new man-made invented rules of politically correct ideology. Just look at what happens to those people. That's discrimination. But understand this. Discrimination precedes persecution. And if American culture continues down this road of embracing a secular man-made ideology versus following what God's Word says is right and true, you can count on it. We're just going to be like other nations in the world that have been facing persecution and martyrdom all through the ages. So Jesus says, be ready, Christian. Tough days are coming. He goes on to number two, verse 10. At that time, many will fall away. Now, what is he talking about here? He's talking about a word called apostasy, that is falling away in the faith. In the 20th century, we saw this happen all over Europe. Europe for 1,900 years had been the leader of Christianity throughout the whole world. Then in the 20th century, there was this dramatic falling away. You go to Europe today, you see magnificent cathedrals that are largely museums. Very little worship there, largely empty. And then in the second half of the 20th century, as many mainline Protestants began to embrace a more liberal theology, you began to see more and more churches falling away and more and more Christians falling away in American culture. Apostasy is a turning from God, a falling away from God. Now, in that light, I want to put a stat on the screen that will really be sobering to you as we look at the number of nuns. Now, I'm not talking about the Catholic nuns, the ladies that are married to Jesus and devoted to the work of the church, but I'm talking about N-O-N-E-S. Look at this graph. In 1997, 8% of Americans labeled themselves as nuns. That means they have no religion, no faith of any kind. But by 2007, it had almost doubled to 15%. But what's even more amazing, within five years, it had grown to 20%. And by 2018, it had grown to 23%. A quarter of Americans have no faith or religion of any kind. That means when they begin to go through a crisis or a difficulty in life, it doesn't even cross their mind about reaching out to the church for help. It doesn't even cross their mind. It's not even on their radar. And so what we see is a dramatic rise of apostasy in American culture. It's almost like we're obsessed with imitating Europe and the direction of what has already occurred in Europe. And Jesus says, just expect this. This is going to happen. But he goes on in verse verse 10. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. 
And one of the character traits, whether it be in North Korea today or in communist China today or in the Soviet Union before it fell, was this urging of children to betray parents that were perhaps secret or closet Christians who were really serious about leading others to faith in Jesus Christ. And in Muslim cultures today, when a person comes to Christ, so much has to be done secretly versus the rejection of their own families a lot of times within that culture of betraying their own loved ones as followers of Jesus Christ. It's just a natural aspect of people that have fallen far from God, even in the name of religion. Verse 11, many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Now, back in verse 4 and 5, Jesus talks about the false messiahs, but we know that all through the age there have also been false prophets. Who's the most famous and influential false prophet in all of history? His name is Muhammad. And in the late 500s, early 600s, as Islam took off, Muhammad did not initially begin to form another religion. He saw himself as seeking to purify the corrupted scriptures of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he claimed to have these supernatural visions and revelations from God. And yet when Jewish believers rejected what he had to say, and he personally oversaw the killing of over 600 Jews on one gathering as their bodies were thrown into a ditch, in many ways a foreshadowing of Nazi Germany in the 20th century, we see over time he not only became hostile to the Jews, but to the infidels that we, in his mind, that we know as followers of Jesus. But think about it in the United States. In the 19th century with Joseph Smith, founding a church that he ironically called the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ, Joseph Smith, if you'll examine his life, has far more in common with Muhammad than he does with Jesus. Because he too, like Muhammad, felt like that he was not forming a new religion. He was just purifying what he saw as the corrupted scriptures of the Old Testament and the New. And that was to be overcome, if you will, through the Book of Mormon. You see two men who want to justify sleeping with more than one woman in the name of God and religion. You see two men who became incredibly violent with those who opposed what they felt was right. You look at Joseph Smith, you look at Muhammad, you see almost identical kind of lifestyles that mislead many. And Jesus is saying, look, it's going to be tough near the end of the age because there's going to be a rise in false prophets who are going to mislead many. But he goes on in verse 12, because lawlessness increased, most people love will grow cold. Now, think about what's happening in America. Just this very year, you see anarchy in the streets of some of our cities with a secular utopian vision of a whole new culture. It's not just in cities like Portland, Seattle, this very week in Philadelphia. Just anarchy in the streets at times. People upset with racial unrest and racial tensions and no doubt discrimination continues to persist in the areas of racial concerns. But you see this increase of lawlessness that is just a reminder of what Jesus says is going to take place. And then he says, and most people's heart will grow cold. What's he talking about? When apostasy occurs, when there's an increase in lawlessness, when people are turning away from God more and more, you're going to see people's heart growing cold towards God. 
And I wonder how it's going to be after COVID. Now, listen, everybody, I, I know some of you are joining us by video today, and we're so glad you're here. But I really want to plea with you that as soon as you're physically able and you're no longer in one of those great at-risk groups, seek to be back in church. Because I'm concerned for the American church as so many have gotten used to being away from church for so long. And yes, we're so thankful for the virtual worship that we've been able to experience. But then as time goes on, could it be that less and less are joining in virtually? And then as the opportunity is for all of us to go back when COVID days are over, will people return? Or will their heart have become so cold to the things of the Lord? Because you see, church is not all about me and how you can be fed virtually. Church is all about community coming together to worship the Lord, to be re-energized and to have our batteries charged to go out and fulfill the ministry and the work of the church. Hearts grow cold when people drift away from God. And very seldom is it an intentional decision. It just happens gradually over time. And look at Europe today and the empty churches all around the big cities and small cities of Europe. Is that where we're headed today in our land and other lands around the world? Jesus is saying, look, these are things for Christians to keep in mind. But then he says this in verse 13. It almost seems out of place here. He says, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now, Listen, listen, are you listening? Don't miss this. Salvation is received when a person makes a decision to put their trust in Jesus Christ as the one who has paid the penalty for our sins on the cross so that when we come to repent of how we've been thinking about God, repent of how we've been thinking about Jesus, repent of the lifestyle we've been living and willing to put our trust in Christ who has paid the penalty for our sins and who has risen from the dead so that we might conquer death as well. We are saved in making that decision. But listen carefully. Once we are saved with an individual decision, then Paul says we're to continually work out our salvation. Now, he's not talking about salvation by works where you earn your salvation. That's a misunderstanding. He's saying that we go through that process that we know theologically is called sanctification. What is that? That is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus in spirit and character. We're all going to fall short. We have that sin nature within us. But once we receive salvation, then we're continually working out our salvation. The more that we allow the Holy Spirit to convict us through the teaching and the preaching and the study of the Word of God to be more and more like Jesus. But thirdly, true salvation that Jesus talks about that begins with an initial decision is not fully realized until we come to the end of our life. Because even though all of us are going to fall short, we're able to better recognize if a person really got saved in the first place if they continue to hold to the faith to the very end. That's what Jesus is talking about. And think about what this says about all these difficulties of the church. Think about what this says. 
You see, we live in the South and Southwest where cultural Christianity has been rampant. That's, that's churches filled with people who believe they're Christian, who believe what the Bible says about Jesus, but they've never really been saved. They've never really trusted their heart into the hands of Jesus, our only hope for salvation. There are a lot of you here today that are cultural Christians. You're good people. You believe what the Bible says. You've been in the church a long time, but you've never really been saved. Every church is filled with people like that. And think about what Jesus is saying. All these things he talks about in verses 9 through 12 is a reminder that what happens in these difficult times is we really begin to see who really got saved. And those who were just cultural Christians playing church, playing at Christianity. Because you see, when there's no longer a cultural advantage to being a follower of Christ, what happens to a lot of people? They just gradually drift away and their heart grows cold towards God. So he's talking about a purification of the church that happens when the church goes through difficult times. And Jesus shares all this with us so that all of us will have an urgency about the mission of the church. And what is the mission of the church? Look at verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. You look what Jesus is saying. This gospel shall be preached to the whole world. What is the gospel? The last three weeks at Marbley, there's been a focus on who's your one and sharing your faith, personal evangelism, and that's where we begin in fulfilling the mission of the church with family members and neighbors and people in our locale. But what is the gospel? The gospel is that Christ died for our sins and Christ rose from the dead. That is the gospel. And when we understand and believe what the gospel is, it means that we are called to make a decision because we have to realize that the gospel is saying all of us are sinners and all of us fall away from God. And our only hope of getting right with God is through what Jesus has done for us on the cross and through what Jesus has done through his resurrection from the dead. Our only hope is to put our trust in Christ, believing that Christ alone is all that we need to be saved from our sins and made right with God. That's the gospel. But note what Jesus says in verse 14. Look at what he says. He says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world. Now, an individual makes a decision about receiving the gospel. But when we receive the gospel, it always has corporate ramifications. Individualistic American Christians, they just often so myopic in our views. Yes, we make an individual decision that only you can make in trusting Christ. But when we do, we enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus came not for the dawning of denominations. He came for the dawning of the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is wherever Jesus reigns. If Jesus reigns in your life, the kingdom of God is there. If Jesus reigns in your family, the kingdom of God is here. If Jesus reigns in Marbley Baptist, the kingdom of God is here. If Jesus reigns in a denomination, the kingdom of God is there. But understand this. An individual Christian, an individual church, an individual denomination only has worth as to how it builds up the kingdom of God. 
And any church that is all about building up that church or any denomination that talks more about their denomination than the kingdom of God has got things completely backward of what Jesus has in mind. He didn't come for the dawning of denominations. He came for the dawning of the kingdom of God. And we only have worth as a Christian, as a local church, as a denomination, when we are all about building up the kingdom of God, that is where Jesus reigns. And yes, he will use denominations to be different aspects of his kingdom enterprise. But most of all, we're to be about the kingdom of God. You know, it just galls me. I, I just got to confess, it just galls me. When people in our church, Atlanta, at Johnson Ferry, somebody asks them, what faith are you are? And they say, I'm a Baptist. Oh, I just cringe. I just cringe. I'm so sorry to answer like that. And other people say, well, I'm a Methodist. Or I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Catholic. All that does is say to a non-believer how they can pigeonhole you on the type of person you are. You should say, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And I happen to worship in a Baptist church or a Lutheran church or an Assembly of God church, but I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus because you're about the kingdom. That's what we're to be about. It's an individual decision, but it has corporate ramifications as we join together in the mission that Christ has given us to take this gospel of the kingdom to the whole world. What is the whole world? It's your locale here in Longview. It's your state. It's the United States. It's every nation on the face of the earth. But not only that, look at what Jesus says in verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Now, please don't miss this. This is so rich. Listen now. Are you listening? Are you listening? The word for nations is the Greek word ethnos. What is ethnos? It's where we get the English word ethnic. And what Jesus knew when he gave the Great Commission to the disciples is he knew that nations' names would change. He knew that geographical boundaries for nations would change over 2,000 years. You look at a map of the world in 1900, you won't recognize half the nations in the geographical boundaries. They've changed that much since 1900. But Jesus is speaking of ethnos. That's people groups. Missiologists tell us there are over 11,000 people groups in the world. What's a people group? That's people with a common language and common culture. That's what binds them together, no matter what national or geographical boundary or label they have. There are over 11,000 people groups on the face of the earth. Missiologists tell us over 7,000 of those 11,000 are largely unreached. What do they mean by that? That means that less than 2% of the population claims to be Christian. So even a nation like Japan, where for hundreds of years there's been missionaries and churches, it's really an unreached people group because less than 2% are followers of Jesus Christ. But then among those 7,000 unreached people groups, there are about 3,000 today that have no known church, no known Christian, no known ministry to lift up the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the last frontier. They are unreached and unengaged with the gospel because they're tough to reach and tough to get to. It could be a strict Muslim regime. It could be a, a deep jungle and diff geographical difficulty. But they're among those last 3,000 because they're tough to reach. Now, here's what's so amazing. Here's what's so amazing. In 2011, less than 10 years ago, that number was over 3,800 unreached and unengaged people groups. Today it's about 1,000. It has been the fastest drop 
in the history of the church over 2,000 years. And I don't know about you, but if you realize that, that gets, that gets your juices flowing to realize God is up to something in the world today. I mean, he is up to something big to see that now over 800 of those uh, people groups that had no known Christian or no known church have now been reached with the gospel in the sense that there is a known gospel witness among that people group. That's extraordinary. And so the big question is, are you going to take part in what God is doing in the world today? Because God is up to something incredibly big to see those kind of stats like that. Back in 2011, when I was serving as president of our convention, I knew that God had placed me in that role to focus on global missions. I just knew that was why he had placed me there. It was really bewildering in many other ways. But in 2011, in our World Mission Conference, kind of like a, a month like this, this Go Missions Month that you're having at Mobley, the Holy Spirit got all over me in thinking about, we've got over 46,000 churches in our one denomination. There were 3,800 unreached, unengaged people groups. Surely we could challenge the churches of our convention to where one church could adopt one unreached, unengaged people group, all 3,800. And I got real convicted that we need to go to the Southern Baptist Convention in Phoenix and challenge the churches to do that. But I also knew that logistically our International Mission Board would have a huge challenge matching up individual churches with these unreached people groups that are largely unreached because they're so difficult to get to. It would be a logistical challenge off the map. And we didn't have a president of the International Mission Board, but I knew that Tom Elliff was about to be president. And so I called him. And I said, Tom, I just got to share something the Lord's put on my heart. I want to go to the Southern Baptist Convention coming up here in Phoenix and challenge our churches to have 3,800 churches to come forward to adopt all 3,800 unreached, unengaged people groups. And it was silence over the phone. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what's he thinking? But then he said to me, he said, Brian, I, I'm amazed you're sharing that. Because I've just been meeting the last two days with the vice presidents of our International Mission Board telling them that what I wanted to do is to go to Phoenix at the Southern Baptist Convention and challenge our churches to reach all 3,800 unengaged, unreached people groups. Well, I remembered I was sitting in my driveway talking to him by phone. He was in Oklahoma at the time, and I literally began to weep. I literally, I, I just was overcome with emotion because when the Holy Spirit works in two different places with two different lives and neither one knows what God is doing, and they're brought together, that's a special moment in the Lord. In that convention, we had about 600 churches come forward. It's now grown to a little below 2,000 churches. And I know that's kind of pitiful with 46,000 churches, but I still believe it can come at one point. But here's what's even more exciting. We're just one denomination. If you knew what South Korean Christians are doing and penetrating Asia today, even into North Korea, you would be astounded at their incredible faith compared to the average American Christian. God is up to something incredible around the world. Will you be willing to join in with what God is doing? Because look at what Jesus says. He says, when the gospel is preached to every people group, then the end will come. He doesn't say when the whole world becomes Christian. He says, when the gospel is finally presented to every people group, then the end will come. Now, I know some of you got some strong feelings on eschatology. That's the study of end times, and you've got it all figured out. But this is something I urge you to do. Stick with what Jesus says. And Jesus says, he ain't coming until the job is done. That's not my view. That's Jesus' view. And I think he knows more about this than you do. 
I'm going to stick with Jesus. He says he ain't coming until the job is done. But if we've gone from 3,800 unreached, unengaged people groups to 3,000 in less than 10 years, God is up to something so powerful today. And our decision is, are you going to join with what God is doing? So in that light, we're giving Marbley an opportunity this year. On December 6th, we're going to have a special one-day offering, a Christmas gift to Jesus a one-day offering of over $100,000 to Global Missions in addition to what this church is already doing. You can read about incredible things in the Go Mission brochure about what Marbley is doing, but I just believe that God wants to do something far greater than he's ever done before here at Marbley and being a part of what God is doing in the world and reaching these unreached people groups all around the world. So on December 6th, You'll be given all the details about where a special $100,000 global missions offering is going to be going. You'll be hearing about that in the coming days. But I urge you to look at it as a Christmas gift for Jesus. You know, it is his birthday. Christmas is his birthday. Very often, he's the only one we don't give gift to. We give all kinds of gifts to children and grandchildren and spouses and friends, very often that have very little need of those gifts. Why not have our first Christmas gift be to Jesus? in a way that we are carrying out Christ's great commission to see that every people group on the face of the earth has an opportunity to hear the gospel. Because if you'll read in Revelation 7, 9, read it, read it. In the end of the age, there will be representatives from every tongue, tribe, and people group worshiping the Lord in unity as they have responded to the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You'd think he'd say, where your heart is, there you giving and treasure will be, but he, he doesn't say that. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Go missions begins with giving and then prayer and then going. Because where our treasure is invested, there our heart begins to follow with a passion to pray and a willingness to go and a church that is sending to fulfill what Jesus is talking about. As our time is limited, do you get the picture of the urgency of the mission? Marbley, let's join together and have an incredible impact for Christ's great commission like never before. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for this church. It's already a mission-minded church, but Lord, I know you've got great plans for this church beginning in this season. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, you will be convicting our hearts of what you want us to give and over and above offering, above our regular tithes and offerings, above what we regularly give to missions. But a one-day special gift to Jesus in Christmas that enables this church to move ahead and for our hearts to be more in tune with you and fulfilling your great commission. Oh, Lord, may it be. And, Father, I pray for those who are maybe a cultural Christian or maybe just completely lost and they know it. But, baby, most of all, it's people that have been members here or attending here and grown up in Christian homes, they believe what the Bible says, but they've never really trusted Christ. 
They've never really given you their heart. May this be the day, perhaps, when you, the Holy Spirit, are convicting them of the need to follow Jesus, completely trust Jesus alone for salvation that comes through who Jesus is and what he has done for all of us. Oh, Lord, may you move powerfully. For we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.